Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning. And a special welcome to uh, folks who came from out of town for the Turner Young Wedding. What a beautiful picture we had yesterday of Christ's love for his church as we watched Dan and Allie commit their lives to one another in, in holy matrimony. Uh, if you are just joining us, maybe you're from out of town or maybe you just came this morning for the first time, uh, we are in week two of a five-week study of the Old Testament minor prophet book of Habakkuk. Um, last week, we, we actually looked at all of chapter one and the first verse of chapter two of this story, this true story of a prophet that we know very little about with a funny name, although I, I don't think it's a funny name, Habakkuk. I'd be really impressed with if some, one of you young um, families named a son Habakkuk. That would be really cool. Um, but this, this, this man who lived at a time of decline in, the, um, in, in Israel's history, the, the northern tribe of Israel had already been taken captive by the Assyrians because of their disobedience to God. And sadly, the house of Judah, the southern uh, half, the southern half of the divided kingdom of Israel, had um, gone from really kind of bad to worse. You know, bad king, bad king, bad king, good king, bad king, bad king. That was kind of the, the downward slope uh, trajectory there. And so Habakkuk, in, in the very beginning of, of chapter 1, cried out to God and said, How long will you allow the violence and the injustice in my society continue to go unanswered. Verse 2 and 3 and 4, just, just listen to the cry, the heart cry of Habakkuk here. Uh, the honesty, some would even say maybe the, the gumption before a powerful God. But here's what he cried out. He said, oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? That, that Hebrew word translated iniquity could also be translated injustice. Why do, you make, why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. That was Habakkuk's complaint to the Lord. And we see that God answered him with a vision. Maybe you've cried to God before. Can you imagine getting a, a vision? Now, we don't, we don't read about what Habakkuk actually saw, okay, like Isaiah records and Ezekiel records, things that, that wondrous things that they saw in the visions that God gave to them. But Habakkuk just tells us what he heard. And so God answers Habakkuk, and God says, yes, I have seen it all. Don't worry. I'm raising up the Babylonians to come and wipe you out in judgment. And, and, and God actually describes in detail the Babylonian war machine that's coming and basically says, you guys don't have a chance. They're going to just annihilate you. So, so then we read Habakkuk has a second complaint to God. And, and he, he said, this is, a, this is a, an explanation here, okay, a summary here. But basically Habakkuk changes his tune a little bit. And he says, wait a minute, God. How can you be a just God 
and allow or use people who are worse than we are. He's talking about the Babylonians. These people are just violent and bloodthirsty and arrogant. How can you use them to be your instruments for judging us? So there's several things going on here. Um, Probably a little bit of defensiveness. I mean, Habakkuk trying to be the watchman on the wall and speak to God on behalf of his people. Like first asking God for judgment in a sense and then saying, whoa, not that much, (laughs) right? Um, A little bit of protection, but also he's actually questioning God's justice in using the wicked to judge people who are not as wicked, maybe. Right? So the way Habakkuk puts it, it's really in verse 13. He says, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? And then, I, I, I love, and then there's some more, um, some more description of the wickedness of the Babylonians. But I love how Habakkuk ends it in verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So you see here uh, a sense of bewilderment, maybe consternation, but also faith as he waits for the Lord's answer and, and even waits for the Lord's reproof, it seems. And so God answers again. And that's what we're going to look at today Uh, And next week, we're going to see God's second response to Habakkuk. And in verse 2 and 3, we see that God's plan, that which he has already revealed to Habakkuk, and that that which he's going to continue to reveal to Habakkuk about his, his plan, God's plan is certain. Look at verse 2. God's plan is certain. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. Now, there's two interesting things here. Write the vision on tablets, perhaps. Perhaps these were stone tablets. Some scholars think so. You know, chiseling, <laughs> that would take some time, wouldn't it? Uh, God's, God's message on tablets. Others say no, it's probably like more like clay tablets or maybe even wooden tablets that were overlaid in wax. Okay, and then you take like a stylus, so to speak, and, and kind of etch it in on the, on the wax so that other people may know the vision. And then there's this interesting uh, turn so that he may run who reads it. Now, there, there's a whole bunch of possible uh, interpretations here. For he may run who reads it. I'll mention just two of them, okay, uh, that I find the most plausible. One would be possibly run for your life. Reminds me of Jesus' instructions to run from Jerusalem, right? Um, other, in other places where, where Jesus was prophesying about the, the coming Roman destruction, he's like saying, hey, when they persecute you and, and telling his disciples as well as they go out and bring the gospel to places he's saying when they persecute you in one city flee to the next right um, perhaps maybe others think hey this is more like a metaphorical running kind of like what we what we recently uh, studied in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1 through 2 that that like race of faith okay so that you Habakkuk 
may, may kind of run as you announce to everybody impending in, in judgments that they may repent. Perhaps. But the, the point here, the main point here is very clear in verse 3. For, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. There's a sense in which God is lovingly rubbing Habakkuk's face in it. Okay? I've told you destruction's coming. You have questioned whether that'll really happen or my justice here. Maybe you're trying to get me to change my mind. It's going to happen. That's the main point here. It is going to happen. Habakkuk, don't think this vision you had was like a bad falafel dream. All right, you've heard of like maybe a bad pizza dream. Okay, well, they didn't have pizza back then, but they had falafel. So maybe it was a bad falafel dream. No, Habakkuk, this is going to happen. And so write this vision on tablets. Now, you know, writing the vision down preserved it. For, for others, you know, and it preserved it even for us so that we might learn from this ancient prophecy to Habakkuk that actually has some interesting eschatological prophecies as well and some great sunbeams of hope that we're going to look at these next couple weeks, okay, um, so that we may profit as well. And, you know, I, I just want to stop for a couple moments here and encourage you to be thankful for the written word of God. You know, this written vision is part and, and even a representation of the written word of God that we have. And, you know, maybe if you're like me, sometimes when you're hearing stories from the Bible, maybe you think, wow, it would have been so much better to have been there. Actually, I don't think so when it comes to Habakkuk. I'd rather be here than there. Okay, but maybe you think, man, to see the, you know, the, the pillar of fire, the, the cloud of smoke, to see the Red Sea parting, how could I not have faith? Because it's sight, right? But, but you know, Jesus said, how blessed is the one who doesn't see and yet believes. And I just want to say that we have something far better here because we have in the written word of God, the full picture of God's self-disclosure to us. Written by men over centuries, inspired by the Holy Spirit, such that every word we have to read here is truth, but this is God's self-disclosure to us. Now, does this answer every question humanity has ever had about the substance of the universe? No. Are, are there trillions of pages of unwritten stuff that's God's truth out there? Yeah, and I'm looking forward to discovering a whole lot more in eternity. But this is God's self-disclosure to us. This is what he wants us to know about himself. And the more that you read God's word, the more your heart hears his truth. And there's so much more that we have than Habakkuk had. Because we're able to, instead of just looking at things through a glass darkly, we're able to, to see the, the, the truth in, in technicolor of God's 
plan for creation. So much that has happened in the past, from the very beginning of God's creating the, the heavens and the earth, to sending his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to die on a cross and to rise from the dead. Habakkuk didn't know that. We've got that. And we even are able to look forward, even though the Bible doesn't tell us everything about the nature of heaven, we're able to look forward with great hope, knowing that no matter how dark things get in our lifetime, God has an amazing plan. And there is a sure and beautiful future. So let me encourage you to delight in the written word of God. The psalmist in Psalm 19 said, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Maybe you've got a soul that needs to be revived this morning. Read the word. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Boy, you want to know what's true? Read the Bible. Let your heart rejoice. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean. Are you maybe struggling to tease out some of the unpure motives of your heart? Well, the fear, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. So brothers and sisters, God's plan is certain. And he's revealed much of that to us in his word. And God's word is certain. Dr. Vodi Bakum, while he was at Oxford University working, I think, on his doctorate, he responded to a skeptical professor of his by, by noting the historical accuracy of the Bible being supported by more than 23,000 archaeological digs. Imagine that. He, he wrote this. The Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that took place in the fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. In other words, this is a, not only are there true, is, there, is there a true spiritual uh, record of, of God's desires for humanity, this is a historically accurate, miraculously so, book that is constantly verified through the study of, of history, through the study of archaeology. Dr. James Kennedy wrote, We can trust the Bible as God's word because 2,000 of its predictions have already come true. Already come true. Over 100 prophecies address the city of Babylon. We're going to see some more of that next week, in fact, including its destruction and the fact that it would never be rebuilt. 333 prophecies concern Jesus Christ, accurately predicting his place of birth, his character, and his crucifixion. And these are things that undisputedly were written hundreds of years before Christ. So there is great evidence for the veracity and the truth of the Word of God, both in the Word and even outside the Word. And God has revealed his plan to us through his word. And that plan is certain. What we see here in, in our text, not only is this plan for, to Habakkuk, for, 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 for Judah and to Habakkuk, not only is it, is it certain, and this is really answering Habakkuk's question now, it is also 
just. His plan, this is point number two, is just. And we see this in the first part of verse 4, and we see this also in, in verse 5. And, and I want to explain that to you here. Uh, it can be a little bit hard to know sometimes in Habakkuk because sometimes the subject switches. So, you know, is it, it, what is he talking about here? Is it talking about the Lord? Or is it talking about someone else? Okay, well, in verse 4, at the beginning of verse 4, he's talking about the Babylonians. And what he's saying here, what God is responding to Habakkuk, to his questions, he's saying that he's not going to allow the Babylonian pride and violence to go unanswered. Okay, and so we read in verse 4, the first part of verse 4, Behold, his soul, and he's talking about the Babylonians here. In fact, he's specifically talking, I think, about the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar II. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. You remember, we read in Daniel chapter 4 that, that later King Nebuchadnezzar, and this was Nebuchadnezzar II, became so arrogant that God humbled him by causing him to lose his mind and to go out and for a time become like an animal, eating, eating the grass. James 4, 6 tells us that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so God says, looking down at the Babylonians, even though he's going to use them to, to exact punishment, judgment for his apostate people who have completely rejected him and are following idols, even, even we, read just, we, we read last week in 2 Kings, going so low as to engage in infant sacrifice, okay? Um, they've rejected him. He is, God is going to use these wicked Babylonians to judge his wicked people, and prophet after prophet uh, warned them to turn, and they refused to turn back to Yahweh God, okay? But that does not mean that God approves of the wickedness of the Babylonians. So God is talking now about their pride, and, and also their lack of integrity. It says it is not upright within him. You know, the, the sin of pride often leads to the sin, or to the loss, we should say, of integrity. You can look at anyone who loses their integrity, and there's plenty of, sadly, plenty of cases of this that are very public, sometimes political leaders, sometimes Christian leaders who after, they may have started with purity in the ministry, but after years or even decades of faithful service, lose their integrity. And we think, how could you do that? How could you, how could you let us down like that? Well, often if you peel it back, the layers of sin, often you find pride lurking underneath. A pride that leads to entitlement and the rules for everybody else don't, don't apply to, to me. So, so there's a lesson for all of us. All of us, let us watch out. Beware of pride that can lead to arrogance, that can lead to a, a heart that, where, where God would say it is not upright within him. If you look down to verse 5 here, um, we have an interesting verse that says, Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own, or as he collects 
all as his own peoples. Okay, so, so here in verse 5 again, God is talking about the wickedness of the Babylonians, specifically as they're represented by King Nebuchadnezzar. Now it's interesting here, wine. Why would, why would he throw that word wine out here? Well, in, in Old Testament times, wine was often associated with wealth. Okay, it took, it, 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 was, it, was, it was something that, that wealthy people could indulge in. Uh, it was very valuable. And yet it did not bring true happiness. You know, the Dead Sea Scrolls, you might note, by the way, if you have a, an ESV copy, and you'll notice, you know, down maybe in the, in the bottom here, it mentions that, that actually the, the Hebrew uh, of the Dead Sea Scrolls actually say wealth instead of wine. So some of our manuscripts say wine, others say wealth. Either way, the text has the same basic meaning. The more you take in, whether it be wine or whether it be wealth, the more you want and if you give your heart to it, either wine or wealth, they will not leave you satisfied. They will leave you with want and sickness of heart. Now we, we see here that Nebuchadnezzar or the Babylonian greed is described as being as wide as Sheol, like, like death that never has enough. Dr. Ken Fentress explains it this way. He wrote, Sheol is an Old Testament term for the grave, and it's synonymous with death. The Babylonians here have no self-control, and neither does their leader, Nebuchadnezzar II. They will never stop devouring everything in their path. They will devour Judah because of its sins, but God will stop them at his appointed time. In other words, God will indeed judge the Babylonians for their wickedness because he is just. Wickedness never goes unpunished forever. And I think this is a point that's important for us to remember. God is, is reminding his prophet Habakkuk who questioned his justice, okay, because he would sovereignly use the wicked to accomplish his purpose. This does not mean that God ever condones wickedness even when he uses it to judge Israel. Divine providence is a mystery, but we should never hide behind the sovereignty of God and absolve ourselves of responsibility. So divine providence never absolves humans of responsibility. We're going to see that next week when we look at the five woes of judgment that we see at the remainder of God's response here in chapter 2 against the Babylonians, okay? So, so in Habakkuk, God is promising judgment first against his people who've gone apostate at the hand of the Babylonians. And what he's basically saying here in chapter 2 is, don't worry, they're going to get theirs too in time. And there's actually more woes against the Babylonians in the book of Habakkuk. So be assured that God is just, and one day he will fully judge the wicked, wherever they may be. But we see here that God's plan is certain, and it's just, but it's also consistent. And that's what I want us to focus on here for the remainder of this sermon. God's plan is consistent. And by that, let's look at the second part of verse 4. And this is really good news for us, because 
God has always operated with consistency, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Basic meaning here is that despite the coming storm, God's people are to endure in faith. This is God's plan for his people. It's always been his plan for his people. Ultimately, that plan did not change between the Old and the New Testament. They were to endure through faith. They're to live by faith. So here's the, here's the application for us, that the righteous shall live by faith. The, the repentant people of God, true in Habakkuk's day, true in our day, should face corporate and even national punishment with faith in God's sovereignty and in his long-term good plan. We've got to think long-term. Well, you might be thinking, well, you know, we, hey, we live in the United States of America. We don't, like, live in Nazi Germany being carpet-bombed by the Allies, right? Imagine that. Imagine you're a follower of Jesus back in, in Nazi Germany. Well, you might think, yeah, this has a lot of application to me. Um, my country is being destroyed because of our national wickedness. And so I've, the only thing I can do is just hope in God's good long-term plan. You might think, well, that, you know, that's not exactly where we are. Right now, our nation is still kind of on top, as it were. But the truth is, all of us live in a fallen world. And, and we are, in, even in the United States of America, subject to God's judgment. We are subject to storms. We know that here in northwest Florida, don't we? Every hurricane season, we're kind of holding our breath. We, we know that in a pandemic. Is God sovereign over this pandemic? Is this a learning lesson for us to maybe wake up? Death. We're so used to death, we think it's a normal part of life. But death is not good. For the Christian, what comes right after death is, is beautiful and brilliant and everything we're living for, but the actual process of decay and, and disease and, and dying that all humans endure right now, this is God's judgment on the earth for wickedness. And, and we do all in our power to, to stop death, we can't, but we can't stop it, right? Just as we see in, in verse 5. The, the grave never has enough. It's waiting to swallow us up, right? I mean, we, we, we build houses with climate control, but what happens over time? These, these beautiful houses designed to keep us alive and comfortable, they break down and they decay. What happens to our body? We exercise, we, you know, we hope to eat, we hope maybe we eat right. Um, but what happens? Our, our bodies over time break down, and this is part of living in a fallen world. This is part of judgment, the judgment of God on sin. But God has an amazing plan long-term. And so we walk by faith in God's sovereignty and in his long-term plan, even as we have to face the judgment, the corporate judgment that the, all the earth is struggling under right now. And I don't know what the future looks like for us in a, in a very, frankly, blessed part of creation. I mean, few people have it as good 
as we do. In fact, I would argue that nobody has ever had it as good corporately, overall, as we do. We are so blessed in our country, and yet we too suffer. And I don't know what God has for us in the next few years, corporately as a nation. It might not be easy. And yet God has an amazing long-term plan. And what we see here is a great ray of hope after the storm. And we're going to see that more clearly next week as we dive into the, the, most of chapter 2. But verse 14 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So Habakkuk could and should endure the coming storm through faith that God will not only bring about justice against his enemies, both foreign and domestic, but that he will achieve his plan for history, that the earth will one day be filled with the knowledge of his glory. That's God's plan for history, and it is going to happen. So even if things went badly for Habakkuk in his lifetime, which it seems they surely would, He could endure hardship, even the corporate judgment of God against his nation. He could endure that with confidence because the righteous will live by his faith. Now we live in a time in which we have a whole lot more knowledge than Habakkuk. We we have the beauty of the gospel. And usually, maybe if you think of 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 a... if you, know, if you were to think of one pictorial image that represents the gospel, your mind might go to a cross. And it, and it should, because Christ died on a cruel Roman cross for us, right? So that we might have forgiveness of our sins and eternal life. But I want you to think for a moment, instead of a cross, think about a diamond. Some of you ladies just looked up. Uh, think of a diamond. What are, what are diamonds? Well, they're rare, and so they're valuable, they're expensive, but diamonds do amazing things to light, right? You hold a diamond up, and there's a beam of light that hits that diamond. What happens? You see just an amazing refraction of light, right? You just see all of what is in that light. And so when we hold the light of God's revelation in the Old Testament, up to the diamond of the gospel. When you shine the light of revelation of Habakkuk through the diamond of the gospel, what you see here is, you know, all these beautiful colors. We see here that one day God, the glory of God in Christ, is going to, is going to be scattered throughout the world. You see that You see more what faith actually looks like. And we actually have some light in the New Testament refracted through this diamond of the gospel that gives us a little more clarity into what does it mean to walk or to live by faith. And so there are three passages in the New Testament that actually quote Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4b. And that might be when we, why when you read this, when you hear this, when you heard Pastor Stephen, read these verses. I'm sure in your mind when you heard, but the righteous shall live by faith, you thought, aha, light bulb. I've heard that before, right? That's a familiar text. Why? Well, some of the most powerful gospel-centric texts of the New Testament quote this from Habakkuk. So let's look at those three and see what we may learn. 
Romans chapter 1, verse 16 through 17 summarizes Paul's entire letter. This is really like the theme statement of Romans. Verse 16 of Romans 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now here, Paul uses Habakkuk 2.4 as a proof text for the gospel's essential teaching that salvation comes through faith alone in Jesus. So what Paul is saying is that we are not saved by our righteous actions or our ethnicity. We might think, well, that sounds funny. Like, who really thinks that they're saved because of the way they were born. Well, the Jews did. They thought being Jewish meant they were God's people and they were good to go, right? And by just simply following the law, and that's a lot of the point he's trying to make as we study the book of Romans. It's by faith. And you know, today we might think, well, and maybe you young people think, hey, I grew up in a Christian family. I grew up in church. I memorized 100 verses in Awana. I'm good to go. I was baptized. I'm good to go. But Paul here says, no, we're saved by faith alone in Christ's death for us and his resurrection power. And and when we do that, when we trust in Jesus, right, God gives us the gift of Christ's righteousness. That's the doctrine of double imputation, right? Sometimes we think about the first side of imputation and we miss the second the first is that god imputed or god put our sins on christ when he was on the cross right and we should think about that in fact good friday which is coming up soon um next month i think right is it early this year um good friday is a good time to stop and to to mourn in a sense the death of christ that it was for my sins that he hung on the tree right that god smote him because of me and frankly we should often remember that 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 christ was 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 dying for me for what i did and for what i do but the other side of imputation is that when we truly bow our knee before the lord before christ and trust in him not only does god not see us not see our sin not not only does god look at us as if we never sinned But God actually places the righteousness of Christ on us. And that's what he sees in us. Maybe maybe you need that reminder this week. I do. Well, maybe there are some who want to hold on to some semblance of works righteousness. This is just ubiquitous to the human heart. You find this around the world. You look at any religion, and sadly many expressions of christianity and you see a desire to kind of hang on or take some credit to hang on to something that we do to earn salvation and so paul makes it eminently clear in galatians chapter 3 that we are not saved by the works of the law we are not saved by uh any kind of religious requirements that we fulfill that, that we could somehow earn credit but we are saved through faith alone. And so in Galatians 3.11, Paul writes, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live 
by faith. Now earlier in this argument, Paul had used Abraham as an example of justification by faith. He, he wrote, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Paul is reminding us that you can't get to heaven by following the law, but only by faith in Jesus Christ. And once again, he, he caps his argument with this Old Testament text of Habakkuk 2, 4, that the righteous shall live by faith. In the third place we see this this phrase used is in Hebrews chapter 10. This is really an interesting um, argument here um, where Paul is, is talking within the context of suffering. Okay, And so in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 36 through 39, he writes, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are of those who have faith and preserve our souls. In this context, the writer of Hebrews is specifically encouraging Christians to patiently endure persecution through faith. And and it might be a little bit you know, you, Morgan and I actually had a conversation about this this week. When you look at um, how he quotes, my righteous one shall live by faith, but you also look at how he quotes, and yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay, you're like, well, wait a minute, that's not in the text. But what's actually going on here is the writer of Hebrews is blending elements of two different Old Testament prophecies together. He, he's blending Isaiah 26, 21, and Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 3 through 4 to emphasize the importance of enduring through faith. And, and actually, as, as um, Morgan and I were talking, he, he brought up a point that I thought was really interesting, and that is the readers, the original readers of, of the Hebrews were very familiar with the Old Testament prophets. So when they, when they saw this, this text being quoted from Habakkuk chapter 2, they would have known that that this letter was referring to this minor prophet from the Old Testament. So in a sense, Habakkuk here kicks off the hall of faith of Hebrews chapter 11. In which you read about all these heroes of the faith in the Old Testament. It would have been in the minds of the original readers. Oh yeah, there was that Old Testament prophet Habakkuk who had a conversation with God. Well, Hebrews quote is actually very similar to Habakkuk's original context, with one key difference. And one scholar put it this way. He wrote, The major difference between Habakkuk 2, 3 through 4 and Hebrews 10, 37 through 38, is that in Habakkuk, God's people were going to suffer because of their unfaithfulness to the Lord. Whereas in Hebrews, God's people were suffering because of their faithfulness to the Lord. So as we as we land the plane here, I want us to stop and think about what does it mean today? What does it mean today to live by faith? Does it mean that we should create our own reality? That's what our culture often thinks. When when, when, you you see movies, uh, people talking about you just got to have faith, what they're really saying is you create your own truth. You create your own reality. 
Is it, is it choosing your own adventure? When I was a kid, we had these choose your own adventure books, okay? And so you could kind of, you go through the book and, and you could kind of choose, okay, would you hang a right or would you go straight or would you hang a left? And if you hang a right, you go to page 37 and then the adventure continues. Okay, those were popular for a little while. I don't know if they're still around now. I'm sure it's more sophisticated, right? Um, well, is that what faith is? Just kind of choosing your own adventure? Because in a, in a postmodern world, when you get to the end of science or reason, you go with faith, right? You can't get medical healing, and maybe you've gone down to Mexico and, and you know, had some shark fin treatment or something, you know, powder or whatever. Um, or, you know, but what, at, at the end of it all, what do you do? Well, at that point, you just have faith. That's what the world says. It's not what Scripture is talking about here. The just or the righteous shall live by faith means to trust to depend on the certainty of God's revelation in a way that actually changes your life. It changes how we live. You know, faith that saves is a faith that endures. When God gives us a, a new heart, when he saves us, it, it changes, it manifests itself with how we live, what we do with our hands and what we do with our feet. Where we go with our, our minds even and with our eyes and what we talk about, what we, what we say. And so the walk of faith is a life of humble dependence on Christ versus pride and self-sufficiency. Even in the way we respond to suffering. Even in the way that we respond to current events that may confound us. When I think of faith... I think of some of my elder brothers. You know, and by the way, I just, and, and I recognize that, that asking for this might smack of a little bit of self-interest here, but please do pray for God's protection from Satan's attacks for your elders, physically and spiritually. I think of my dear brother, Ken Bandy, had a chance to visit him the morning after his, um, his encounter with a, um, a, a limb um, from a tree. And uh, Ken, is a, he's a tough man, let me just say, uh, walked into a, uh, to the ICU. And he was sitting there in the chair, not laying in the bed. He had managed to get down into the chair, I think with the help, but I think it was his idea. Okay, no anesthesia yet. Okay, he knew he was going to have, they, they were going to put him under surgery for his femur. And so the man had like, I was like, do you need some ibuprofen? Should I, you know, get you something? He's like, they won't let me have anything. Uh, and, and, you know, nine broken ribs, broken femur, looked like he had, you know, uh, engaged in a fight with Mike Tyson, you know. And, 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 and so he's, he's sitting there and, and he just says, you know, Troy, um, Basically, he didn't say it in these words, but what he said was, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He said, I almost died. I really could have. And the more I heard about what actually happened and should have died, but God chose to catch him, keep him with us. And we give him praise for that. Okay, but he said, he said, I'm, I'm ready. Like, I don't fear it. I am, I am ready to be with my Savior. No fear of death, but sure want to spend some more years with my wife. 
That man loves you, Laney. And, and he was saying for me to live as Christ, but to die as gain. I just sat there humbled. And, and, and you know what? It was an encouragement to my own faith to see the faith of this dear brother. My, 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 my faith is encouraged as I see God's hand of providence. My brother Bart Swan, as he walks through this long-term effects of this major accident, as he weekly continues in, in faith to give God glory as he, as he goes through PT and as he makes these incremental steps of, of recovery, saying, hey, whatever may happen, wherever I may end up, I'm, I'm in God's hands, and he is, he's my all. My faith is encouraged as I watch Elder Barry go through radiation for his prostate cancer. I love the fact that he always says prostate. Or sorry, he always says prostate instead of prostate. He always mixes up and I did it, just did it too. I'm like, no, no, brother. One is bowing before the Lord. The other is something else that you're dealing with. Okay. Um, well, you know what? That man is like out there riding his bike. I don't know how you do that, going through radiation for prostate cancer, but he does. He's out there riding his bike every day with his bride, who's riding her reticulated bike. After all, she went through with her stroke almost five years ago around Blue Water Bay. But you know what he does when he goes in for his radiation every day? He seeks to share the gospel with the other people sitting in the waiting room and the people who are giving him his radiation. Sometimes they listen to him. Sometimes they don't want to hear any of it. But that's his mission when he goes in. I'm encouraged by their faith. Brothers and sisters, what we see here in the book of Habakkuk is that God's judgment is coming. It is coming. That was true for Judah in Habakkuk's day. And that's true for our world. It is going to happen. But within that judgment, something amazing, something great will happen too. So come back next week to explore more what that will look like. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, help us to not flee pain and suffering and judgment at all costs. Instead, Lord, help us to cling to the cross of Jesus Christ in faith and to live by it, to endure in faith. And we thank you, Father, that all who have come to Christ will be received by you. Jesus said, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and he who comes to me I will by no means cast out. So we thank you, Lord, that at the foot of the cross our souls can endure the coming storm of your wrath. And Lord, we thank you that we have eternal life to look forward to. I pray that we would live in light of that truth every day. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Will you stand please?